The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Support for this show comes from the Utopia Foundation, committed to providing opportunities for people to express their good intentions in local and international communities. Learn how you can create positive change in the world at utopiafound.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. I want to thank the Utopia Foundation for making this week's podcast possible. My guest today, Dr. David Perlmutter, is a board-certified neurologist and fellow of the American College of Nutrition. He is associate professor at University of Miami School of Medicine, and he's the director of the Perlmutter Brain Foundation. He's published extensively in a number of professional medical journals, and he's appeared and continues to appear on a variety of television shows, including Larry King Live, The Oprah Show, and Dr. Oz. His new book is entitled Brain Maker, The Power of Gut Microbes to Heal and Protect Your Brain for Life. A review of the book appears in the May-June issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Dr. David Perlmutter, welcome to Essential Conversations. Well, I am absolutely delighted to be here. Thank you. I got to tell you right from the beginning, I know nothing about the brain, the gut, (laughs) or how the brain influences the gut or the gut influences the brain. So taking that, you know, as your starting point, lay out your basic argument for me. Uh, I'll lay out my position. And that is, you know, what current uh, science is all over is finally just getting past this reductionist mentality in terms of the human body. It's been kind of the modus operandi that there is a heart, which is a pump, and the bellows are the lungs, and the circulatory system is the plumbing, and the brain is the laptop. These things all operate completely independently. That's kind of a model for breaking down the human body, a reductionist mentality that has been kind of operative for the past 150 years ago. Never in the history of mankind did the body be looked upon as being not integrated. Now we're finally getting back to celebrating the integration, the notion that the brain and the gut communicate, that the gut communicates with every part of the body, that the heart and the liver are in communication, that everybody's talking to each other, and that allows the manifestation of health. So we're now celebrating this beautiful relationship, the dance that actually occurs between the brain and the gut and back from the gut to the brain as well. And understanding 
that moment to moment, every aspect of the brain's functionality, what really allows us to experience this wonderful life that we have is governed by things gut related. And in the long run, health of the brain, risk for disease, risk for degenerative conditions that we so fear like Alzheimer's, ALS, and in younger people, autism, are governed by things gut-related. And the exciting part of that story is that when you embrace that knowledge, that level of peer-reviewed science that our most well-respected institutions are now making clear to us, it really opens up a huge new playing field that allows us to leverage this information and gain a foothold in terms of creating programs that will allow people to experience better mood, less depression, better brain functionality, and reduced risk for brain disease in the long run. So, you know, in your book, you talk about the microbes in the gut as superheroes. I'm just going to read a little sentence here so people understand what I'm saying. Perhaps there's no better word for the microorganisms that live in your intestines and help with digestion than superheroes. Although it's been estimated that at least 10,000 distinct species cohabit the human gut, some experts argue that the number may exceed 35,000. Given that I'm so overweight, I think I'm close to the 35,000. I've, I've made room for a lot of these little guys. Why do you call them superheroes? Well, because as mentioned, you know, I think the last answer really is a new understanding of our friends that live within us. You know, we've been, uh, especially those of us involved in medicine, we've been kind of trained to fear bacteria. I mean, you go back to the 14th century, the bubonic plague it was a global bacterial event that wiped out a third of Europe. And so we, you know, we live in fear of the next germ around the corner, washing our hands and taking antibiotics with every sniffle as if bacteria as a group generically are bad things. Well, by and large, most of the bacteria that live within you are there supporting your health. They are symbionts in terms of letting you survive as you let them survive. We call these commensal organisms. That means that we co, we share, mensa, eat. We share the dinner table with the bacteria that live within us. They eat what you choose to eat. And by nurturing them, we pave the way for wonderful experiences in life in terms of our health. We pave the way for improved mood for being able to maintain normal body weight, for making us resistant for brain degenerative issues. So we're now just beginning to appreciate that this is a very much a symbiotic relationship between our superhero wonderful bacterial friends that live within us and our body as a whole. So it, it definitely reframes this relationship that we generally and certainly us in the healthcare profession have with the notion of bacteria. I love this idea, and I, and I love the metaphor of the superhero, and it made me think, because I went back and took a look at your previous book, Grain Brain, and it sounded like there's some kryptonite that we're inserting into the, the field of superheroes here. Things like wheat, carbs, sugar, you say they're killing our brains, and I guess they're doing that by harming the microbes or introducing the wrong kind of microbes. What's the problem with gluten and, and all this? And as you know, I've been advocating a better diet for the brain for a long time. My previous book was really subtitled exactly what you, you just mentioned. You know, we understand now the powerful role, the devastating role of things like uh, high carbohydrates in the diet in terms of the brain. That's been documented for many years that those individuals on a higher carb diet whose blood sugars go up create a situation of great risk as it relates to brain health. Now, with BrainMaker, we understand much more fully 
the mechanism by which that happens. And the mechanism is the changes that are imparted on the gut bacteria, favoring a situation where the process in the body of inflammation is enhanced and inflammation brought on by uh, diets that are inappropriate and therefore changes in the gut bacteria, inflammation as a mechanism is the cornerstone of things like Parkinson's disease, MS, autism, Alzheimer's, and coronary artery disease, diabetes, and even cancer. So this finally lets us gain a full understanding about what it is that's governing inflammation, how it relates to the gut and our food choices, and perhaps most importantly, what can you do about it? That's the interesting thing, because when I was looking at the mission statement of the Perlmutter Brain Foundation, you have this fascinating, I'm sure to you it's old hat already, but to me it was really interesting. You say that your institute, your foundation, specifically champions research exploring the role of modifiable lifestyle factors in various neurological conditions ranging from tension deficit disorder in kids to Alzheimer's. I wanted to talk about kids for a second. If carbs are a problem, and now if I've got this wrong, let me know so I don't confuse anybody other than myself. But it seems to me that the diet of people on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale is higher in carbs maybe than other diets. And that the diets that we feed our kids in the public school is also carb loaded. And I'm wondering if we're is an issue of justice and is an issue of medical responsibility within a public school system. Do you think we're doing the right thing by our kids with the kinds of diets? that we promote? We are not. And what is the actionable point here? There are two ways of saying teacher. One is rabbi and one is doctor. Both words mean teacher. And that is the challenge here. And that's why I write the books and I do interviews with you today because we've got to let parents and teachers and government officials and policymakers understand that this is what our leading edge scientists are telling us. That is that carbohydrates, sugars are jeopardizing the health, in this case, of our children, jeopardizing the way their brains function, dramatically related to cognitive issues and having a significant relationship to a prevalent problem that now goes by the acronym of ADHD, affecting 6 million American children, two-thirds of whom are on mind-altering medications, the long-term consequences of which have never been studied. So it's a very clear and present issue. And again, that's the situation. So rather than curse the darkness, let's light the single candle and do what you and I are doing right now. And that is, in this darkness, light the single candle of education, letting parents, in this case, understand that the way to enhance your child's brain functionality is to give your child better fat while reducing the carbohydrates. Who knew? I ask that question tongue-in-cheek because sure. who knew? We've always known this, that fat is good for the brain and good for the heart, good for the body. Only in the past 30 years did somehow that message get so perverted that people began gravitating because of financial interest to a low-fat diet. It never made sense. It doesn't make sense today. It has never made sense in the history of humankind. So you, you guys introduced this notion of financial interest. So I want to ask about the pushback. So like you said, we've got, I think you just said, six million kids who are suffering from ADD, ADHD, they're on Ritalin or other kinds of drugs. And you're suggesting, and I'm inclined in your direction here, but you're suggesting that diet is crucial. Do you get a lot of pushback from the pharmaceutical people who are saying, well, you know, that's nice, but buy my product? Well, of course. And they don't have interest in my message. Why? Because it's going to detract from their bottom line. I mean, 
what was the pushback when suddenly the Surgeon General said, hey, as a matter of fact, tobacco products are related to lung cancer risk. That was not in their interest. And similarly, what I'm telling parents is not in the interest of the manufacturers of the various uh, stimulant medications that are so prevalent. You know, 4% of adults in America has been, have been diagnosed with ADHD as well. And, you know, most of them are medicated. So it's a scary situation that people don't know what the long-term consequences of these drugs are. And yet the literature that correlates diet to these issues is profound. The literature that correlates changes in the gut bacteria to autism, for example, is very profound coming from our best institutions. I explore that aggressively in the book Brain Maker and even present a case of a young child, 10-year-old child, who underwent a dramatic change in his gut bacteria undergoing a procedure called fecal microbial transplant where his gut was implanted with fecal material from a healthy individual and he immediately began speaking and became socially interactive. Now, for your listeners, I'm certainly not suggesting that this should be considered a cure for autism, nor should parents of autistic children who are listening today think that's what they need to do. But I will indicate that the reason I was supportive of this mother engaging in this process is because of the most exciting literature coming to us from really high-end institutions telling us that these kids have a gut that's messed up. Parents know this from day one that the child's digestive system is compromised and that even now the University of Arizona has just finished recruiting a huge number of autistic children to do exactly that procedure, fecal microbial transplant, just because there is so much data now that relates the gut issues to what's going on in their brains. So, you know, you raised the thing with the uh, tobacco industry. It took decades of stonewalling on their behalf before we even got some semblance of, of information out to people. Do you think it'll take that long to get your message out so that people really understand it? No. You know, we live in a time where news travels quickly. You know, with social media the way it is, this is moving the ball down the field much, much more rapidly. And I will say that by the grace of God, the world has opened up to forward thinkers who are willing to step outside of the box. And if the level playing field is one that requires the use of peer-reviewed medical journals, then I'm fine with it because that's what I do. And my mission is simply to bring to the world's attention what is the most well-respected medical literature telling us that you may not learn about by watching the advertisements on the evening news. And that's what BrainMaker is founded on, the notion that this is what our science is telling us, and it's not patentable, it is not proprietary. These are lifestyle issues that you need to know about, because most medical information is purveyed via advertising even to doctors. Dr. Jerry Avorn at Harvard, publishing in a journal, indicated that more than 70% of the information that doctors get when reading a medical journal comes from the advertisement. So this is not monetized. This transcends the notion of a single pill to fix a single problem. And it's so timely that individuals can get this information and change their lifestyle for health across all parameters in terms of being improved by adopting diets that have better fiber content, higher macronutrient content, much lower carbohydrates, welcoming healthy fat back to the table, and eating foods that are fermented, that are enriched with probiotic good bacteria. 
That's the message here. And, you know, beyond that, understanding how it is that we threaten the microbiome in the first place. And we do that by using antibiotics excessively, by delivering our children by cesarean section, for example. That deprives children of passing through the birth canal where they get their initial inoculation with healthy bacteria. That's the kind of information I think parents need to have. I'm certainly not saying that there's not a place for C-section. Of course there is. But the notion that a third of births in America now are delivered in this fashion is a scary proposition when you recognize that C-section delivered children have a significantly increased risk for becoming autistic, developing ADHD, their risk is tripled, becoming obese as an adult, and even developing type 1 diabetes, all in relation to being born by C-section. And again, I think C-sections are a terrific procedure. This isn't mommy bashing what I'm doing. I'm simply telling people what does the science tell us and beyond that, what are the alternatives? At least think twice about undergoing that procedure. That discussion needs to be a lot more intense than simply how big will my scar be. (laughs) Okay, that's a good point. You sound very optimistic in that Americans will listen to science. And yet you look at other scientific issues, global warming and things like that, we're sort of science-phobic. To some degree. I think we're science-phobic to some degree. I mean, the issue with global warming, there's almost religious fervor in denying the fact that man is having any influence on the earth that God has created. So I don't want to jump into that argument or discussion, as it were. But I would say that when it comes to parents and children, there seems to be a lot more open-mindedness. And you know, some of the venues that have opened up to me to have these discussions have been venues that would not be embracing uh, other more politically charged debates. So this is more about having rights to make decisions with reference to your loved ones. And I think that throws a much wider net in terms of acceptance in our society. As you're saying this, I'm thinking of what's going on with vaccines and the measles in California and parents making choices for kids, some of them informed by authentic science and some of them informed by bogus science or that study on vaccines that was, I don't know, deliberately, but perhaps even deliberately misleading people. Are you worried about that at all? Well, I think that, you know, first you have to look at vaccines in the context of the gut bacteria. And we understand that when there are changes in the gut bacteria, it compromises how vaccines will work. The immunizations that we receive are very dependent on things going on in the gut for their efficacy and for some degree for their safety. So when people talk about autism being caused by immunizations, it's, you know, again, a a single uh, idea, a billiard ball approach to the problem of autism, for example, that I think is very difficult for me to accept. I think that there are multiple factors. And when immunizations are administered, for example, to children whose gut bacteria have been changed, then there can be issues there. That means multiple factors. So this is a very difficult uh, argument or discussion. And I would say that I'm certainly in favor of staggering the immunizations as opposed to bombarding a child with eight, nine, or ten immunizations at one office visit because it's a matter of convenience. Their immature immune system has difficulty in adapting and responding appropriately to that level of challenge. I believe that the CDC guidelines are appropriate, but those CDC guidelines allow for some variability in the timing so that they don't have to all be given at one office visit. Just to leave people with something very practical, can you Maybe the three most important foods to avoid or to eat. 
Well, the ones to avoid, I would say, would be sugar, artificial sweeteners, absolutely, and uh, probably foods that contain gluten. Those foods that I would favor would be nutrient-dense, above-ground, fiber-rich vegetables, fermented foods that, uh, like kimchi, kombucha, that have fermented and contain rich levels of probiotic organisms, and finally, foods that are high in fat. You heard me right, high in good fat, grass-fed beef. Uh, wild fish, free-range eggs, olive oil, nuts, and seeds. Those are wonderful foods to bring back to the table. Very interesting. You're really great. I thank you so much for being on the show with us today, Dr. David Perlmutter. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was our pleasure. This week's show was sponsored by the Utopia Foundation, providing the opportunity for people to create solutions that contribute to a more equitable world. Please visit them at utopiafound.org. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit our website, spiritualityhealth.com, to subscribe to the magazine and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Corin Johnston, and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. I'm Liz Winter and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Mediumship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.